Welcome, awesome admission professionals. This podcast is the Admissions Entrepreneur, a day in the life. I'm your host, Tom Skank, and I'm the founder of Dartmouth Associates. We are the creators of the results-oriented recruiting solution known as ROAR. ROAR is an enrollment intervention strategy that integrates entrepreneurial thinking and sales fundamentals to immediately help schools in crisis. We offer personal 360 consulting as well as affordable training products on the website. If you need help, please go to our website at dartmouthassociates.com. That's dartmouthassociates.com or email us at dartmouthassociates at gmail.com. That is dartmouthassociates at gmail.com. Today, we are bringing fun and insights to your profession. We have exciting people who share their unique life stories with you. We've got a lineup of fabulous guests, so please make sure to catch each episode. Now, let's get started. Welcome, Bethany. I am delighted that you are here today. Bethany DiNapoli is the executive director of the Independent School Chairpersons Association. She helps provide independent school chairs with the resources, education, and support they need to be successful in their role. As a former independent school board chair and member of ISCA, she understands firsthand the challenges and rewards of serving in that role and also benefited from the tremendous support ISCA provided to her when she was board chair. Bethany's professional background is in public health and nutrition. She worked at the Rhode Island Department of Health for many years before leaving her position to care for her four school-age children. Her involvement with her children's independent school led her to being appointed board chair of St. Michael's Country Day School in Newport, Rhode Island, where she served in that role for five and a half years. Bethany has served as executive director of ISCA since August of 2017, and has had the honor and pleasure of connecting ISCA members and experts in respective disciplines related to the board's work, including governance, legal, financial, and diversity experts. She has been proud to see the organization grow and serve more board chairs under her leadership. Bethany also serves on the board of directors for a professional contemporary ballet company in Newport, Rhode Island, where she lives with her husband and four children. Bethany can be reached via email at bethany at iscachairs.org. That is B-E-T-H-A-N-Y at I-S- C-A-C-H-A-I-R-S dot org or by telephone at 401-216-8079. Bethany, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. (laughs) Well, it is absolutely my pleasure. And I've really been looking forward to this. You know, what you're doing and what the organization is doing is absolutely critical because... As we both know, 
being a board chair at an independent school is almost on the job training. Um, and that's the kind of training that you provide so they don't have to make decisions without good, good guidance. So thank you for all that you're doing with that. Thank you, yes. I'm gonna start off with one question and then we'll just take it from there. Um, so my first question is, since you've been the executive director, would you please talk us through the evolution of the association, please? Sure. So as, as you indicated, uh, I first came to know ISCA as a member um, when I was board chair. And um, at that time, what I found extremely valuable was this peer network of support um, that was available to me through their online discussion forum as well as having attended uh, their annual fall governance conference. Um, when I took over in, um, in 2017, what, what I thought that there uh, was a lot of room for was taking advantage of, of technology and being able to serve our members who are scattered across the country uh, in ways that the, that the organization hadn't really done as, as much before. So we started offering webinars in particular, which were never offered before um, uh, through, through ISCA. So um, prior to my taking over, um, the organization was doing the online forum. They had a fall governance conference and occasionally had other regional meetings or conferences, um, you know, in different locations around the country. But I wanted to find a way to provide more regular, consistent contact with our members. Um, and we did that by offering webinars on a monthly basis. And I started do, doing something called our weekly chair post, where I have been sharing just one piece of information with our members on a weekly basis that is relevant to the work that they're doing as board chair. And it could be a piece of data. It could be like a statistic. It could be a link to an article. It could be an announcement for some upcoming program. But just one thing that... Um, is not overwhelming. As we all know, we get inundated with emails and, and newsletters that are very long. And I've tried to um, keep it very simple and, uh, and factual. So um, the other thing that we noticed is that a lot of our members were fairly new board chairs. And so we started something called a peer advisor program for first year board chairs. Uh, so if you are a new board chair and have joined ISCA, we give you the opportunity to uh, pair up with an experienced board chair for your first year of service. And that peer mentor is really just that. They are a mentor, someone who has been a board chair for many years, has a lot of experience as a board chair. And they're just another person that a new board chair can reach out to and have a conversation with should they feel that they want to um, air a particular issue or challenge by someone else. And that has proven to also be a very welcomed uh, uh, program for us. Uh, especially for those first year board chairs. So, um, so by offering more frequent webinars, um, by having this uh, weekly chair post, our peer advisor program, our annual conference, our online discussion forum, we also added um, a, a valuable resource to our online discussion forum on a monthly basis, 
we partnered with governance consultant, uh, Kathy Trower, who is well-respected in the governance community. And she responds once a month to one query that our members might be posing on our online forum. So we get some uh, professional expertise and opinion uh, from a professional governance consultant on a topic that might've been posted that month. So through all of those different um, programs, um, you know, we've been able to more consistently reach our members, provide resources and support uh, on a more ongoing basis throughout the year, in addition to our in-person meetups. So obviously this past year with the pandemic, um, our typical in-person conference did not happen. We did do that virtually. But what also was born out of the pandemic this past year was something that we started doing called chair chats. And um, those have been less uh, formal gatherings over Zoom around a particular topic or theme uh, that's more conversational and engaging in nature. So for instance, one example of a chair chat versus a webinar, which is a little bit more of a formal presentation of information or content, you know, with some exchange or chair chats are meant to be a little less formal. Um, so we had um, a chair chat this past spring, uh, last spring around um, uh, boards who were welcoming new, new heads of school and how they were managing that in the midst of, of being remote in the pandemic, not being able to uh, normally have the uh, the celebrations to honor the outgoing head like they would normally do. So yeah. we we got together on this great call and they were all sharing ideas of how they were recognizing their outgoing head, what their plans were for welcoming their new head, despite, you know, given the parameters of, of quarantine and so forth. So, so that was just an example of, of a less formal chair chat that, again, was really helpful and beneficial to those members who were in that situation um, of a head transition last year. So, um, so those are some of the big highlights, I think, of, of the changes that we've made this past year. We added um, also an our archives to our website. So our members all have access to a members page on our website where we archive all our we webinars, our weekly chair posts, uh, and some in our online forum uh, posts from Kathy Trower. So even if you're a new member joining today, you can go back through our archives and search. If there is a topic that is really relevant for you today, you can go back and watch that webinar or pull up that chair post and get those resources available to you um, from, from prior, uh, prior years. What a well-organized presentation. Wow, no wonder you're so effective. Thank you, <laughs> thank you. Um, I have had the pleasure of being a head of school, uh, fundraiser, as well as director of admission. And I've worked with a lot of boards and my question to you now, Bethany, is as new board chairs come in, what are, say, the top three greatest challenges that they seem to have in common? This episode is sponsored by School Connections. The idea is simple, affordable, and meaningful venues for traditional boarding schools, therapeutic schools, and domestic and international educational consultants to come together for informational and networking purposes. This process 
ultimately leads to the successful placing of students into the most compatible environments. School Connections workshops involve multiple individual meetings between educational consultants and admissions representatives from schools and programs. Their workshops range from two to three days and allow attendees to maximize their time with individual appointments in one workshop in one location. I know from experience, School Connections is a fantastic program. And if you are looking for students, please reach out to them at schoolconnections.org. That's schoolconnections.org. So I would say all board chairs care very much about establishing a strong relationship with the head of school. That's first and foremost. They understand that that relationship uh, is of critical importance for the future success of the school. Um, so establishing trust, establishing expectations, um, and really building that partnership and leadership uh-huh. is, I think, what they recognize as being very important. The other big piece I think that they um, that they recognize is just managing their board, um, you know, and uh, making sure that um, trustees are behaving appropriately or disciplining them when they're not behaving appropriately, um, making the board um, really engaged and focusing on, I think, the more strategic and forward-thinking aspects of school um, and how to organize their board to really accomplish that work. We've talked a lot, and I think in this past year, there's a lot of interest in rethinking the board structure and organization to really promote a more generative type thinking and uh, and and forward thinking guidance um, from the, from the board. So thinking about the committee structure and the frequency of meetings, how the board meeting itself, what the agenda of the board meeting is, and how much time is allocated towards provocative questions and topics of conversation. So. I think a lot is um, that they're thinking about is how can I structure our board to be really productive um, and serve the school well? And then I think the last piece is probably a more personal thing, which is how they find strike a balance with um, the demands of being a board chair, um, you know, with, with all their other responsibilities. So, you know, first and foremost, it's a volunteer role. Um, And this past year in particular, uh, if anything, demonstrated the demands, um, you know, of everyone involved with schools, you know, board chairs were, um, you know, have been working so much harder (laughs) than than they ever thought they would be. And so I think with any, um, you know, any particular position, especially a volunteer position, I think for them trying to... um, have um, reasonable expectations of themselves and the time that's required to um, to do a good job. I think most board chairs take on this role with such good intentions and wanting to do a good job, wanting to serve the school well, wanting to add value to this process. And 
Um, and I think that they quickly realize that for most of them, it's it's taking more time than what they maybe originally thought. Perfectly. And so just finding ways to um, find that balance uh, in their leadership. Um, this year has been a tough one to do that, but, um, but they're all finding ways to um, uh, sort of pause for themselves too and make sure that they're taking care of themselves, um, you know, as well as, you know, carrying out their other responsibilities. I know that the configuration and expectations of boards uh, can certainly be different between day schools and boarding schools. Uh, many times, obviously, with a boarding school, these folks might be coming from all over the country. Uh, whereas with day schools, they're in the neighborhood for the most part. What are the greatest challenges that you have found from the boarding school realm as to what challenges board chairs face in terms of organizing a disparate group of people geographically? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's been interesting this past year. Um, most of our member schools of ISCA um, are certainly day schools, but of the boarding, they're usually are combination day boarding. So okay. we have very few ISCA members who are exclusively boarding schools. Most of them are day boarding. Um, but that all said, um, even some of our day schools have switched to more of a, a boarding school um, meeting type schedule where they're meeting less frequently, but for longer periods of time. And, um, and what they have found is that they're able to do more of these deeper dive conversations and discussions that the more traditional one to two hour board meetings okay. may not lend itself to. So I think there's lots of conversations again around how um, boards are structuring their meeting times to have really deep meaningful conversations about important things that the school is facing. Um, Zoom has changed an awful lot, um, has changed the dynamics of board meetings. And I think what uh, what our board chairs have recognized is that um, when boards come together in a traditional physical environment and sit around a conference room table, and I will speak probably more for the day schools that meet, I would say more frequently than the boarding schools, um, boards tend to fall into patterns of individual trustees sitting in certain places around the table every time they come in or um, there's a lot of dynamics around personality. So it's the loudest voice in the room sometimes that gets the most, you know, the most airtime, so to speak. Or, um, and so what Zoom did, Zoom, when everyone had to go to a Zoom platform, it, it allowed for a shift um, in dynamics that made a more even playing field um, around uh, board members. Oh, all right. And so for, you know, so that everyone, um, it seems that everyone has had more of a voice. Um, there is less of the more visual um, uh, indications of power around the table uh, when you when you are on Zoom. And I think what boards or board chairs are starting to you know trying to figure out is there have been some some pluses you know to going to Zoom with regards to board dynamics, and they're trying to figure out how to maintain some of those positive changes when they reconvene in person. 
you know, which is eliciting some of the opinions, you know, of others who, you know, may not be as outspoken um, in person at a board meeting and, um, and switching up where people sit around the table. And <laughs> so those kinds of things are really interesting, you know, have been some unexpected um, outcomes of, of the pandemic in particular and what switching to a remote um, um, you know, board meetings has, uh, has offered. Do you think that they will continue to use Zoom even though the country is back to face-to-face then? I think Zoom is always going to be an option. I think, you know, in general, even when uh, before, Zoom, before the pandemic, you know, certainly we, we would have board members who, again, were just happened to be away at a board meeting or they were traveling. And now I think Zoom will always be an option for someone to participate remotely if they can't physically be at a board meet, be, you know, present for a board meeting. I don't see us ever going back to not having that as an option. I think it would be a big mistake to not offer that. I think it's more important to be able to have someone, even if they are not physically able to be there, but can uh, but can participate over Zoom to ha- still have their voice um, and their thoughts around the table, so to speak, even if they can't physically be there. This episode is sponsored by the Independent Educational Consultants Association. It is the largest and most respected organization representing independent educational consultants. An IECA member educational consultant is a skilled professional who provides counseling to help students and families choose a school that is a good personal match, one that will foster the student's academic and social growth. IECA members adhere to the strictest ethical standards in the profession, visit hundreds of campuses each year, and are among the most experienced educational consultants in the profession. They focus on finding the best match between student and school. Many schools have gained students from new communities because of their outreach to IECA members. Personally, I was a director of admissions for 20 years, and the IECA consultants were crucial in helping me find the best mission-appropriate students. They are fantastic people to work with. In fact, national and regional media, as well as government agencies, rely on IECA as the authority of the profession. IECA is consistently cited by the media as the association with ethical, student-centered advising. For more information on how to connect with IECA members, go to IECAonline.com. That's IECAonline.com. One of the issues with boards, getting back to expectations that you mentioned earlier, there is that concept of work, wisdom, and wealth in terms of a board having people that could contribute in each one of those categories. How have you found boards and what their expectations are? How are they how are they clarifying the expectations of someone when they bring them on the board? Because many times, you know, the issue of how much somebody is going to be expected to give or what the board is expected to give, how do they manage those expectations? Well, we talk a lot about the onboarding process and, you know, the vetting of, of trustees before they're even on the board. So I think that the, the most important thing that, that boards or committees on trustees and board chairs can do in 
establishing a healthy culture for the board is really in the onboarding and vetting process um, before that board member even steps foot in the boardroom. And that there are really important conversations about what is the role of the board and individual trustees. And, you know, I think that um, what there's an assumption that because someone is say a very successful, say CEO of a company or very successful business person that they're going to automatically be a great board member. And fortunately that's not, uh, that's not always the case. Um, and I think what uh, the decision-making process and what happens around conversations uh, around the table, especially for the board chair, the board chair acts as a facilitator um, of conversation. And they have to actually play that role really, really well um, to have very good conversation. The idea is to, to welcome differing perspectives uh, around a conversation or a topic and really vet different opinions so that you can, that leads to better decision-making. And I think that what um, board committees on trustees who are interviewing new potential board members when you're doing the orientation process a lot of attention needs to be paid to the role of the individual trustee, how any one individual trustee has no more power than any one other individual trustee, that the power lies within the board as a collective, not with any one individual. And some of those very important basic um, rules need to be uh, underscored in those conversations. Um, and that, you know, going back to the basic duties of board service of loyalty, obedience, and care, um, reiterating that, you know, we're not there, we have to put our interests aside, especially as parent trustees. And, you know, we do have to work to take that hat off and make decisions based on the best interests of the school, not our own. Um, and that's always, you know, that's always a challenge for parent trustees who are experiencing the school as parents, but also are trying to make decisions um, without that weighing too heavily on their, uh, in their opinions. What do you, what do you feel, Bethany, is the best course regarding trustees, perhaps at day schools? Uh, is it, uh, is it uh, a challenge when you've got someone who has got maybe mixed loyalties in the sense of they have a child or children at the school and they're also asked to make these global decisions which may or may not uh, be helpful to their child? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's tough. I think that um, one of the things that we were just, uh, I was just reading as, which is, you know, the the board is in service to the organization's purpose. And so there is value in having people around the boardroom table who understand to, who are, ex, who can experience and are close to uh, what is the, the mission of the organization. So in this case, parent trustees are experiencing the mission of the school. So there is value in, in that. But what they have to be careful about is making sure that when they're making decisions, that it is um, thinking about the global community, not just of all of the students, not just my individual child or my own personal preference uh, for, 
you know, one foreign language over another, say, something like that. It's really about keeping in mind that you are thinking about everyone who is benefiting or who is being served from, uh, from the school and always wearing that hat of keeping everyone in mind, not just, you know, what might be your singular experience. Yeah, it's a it's a challenge as to whether or not to vote for the for the uh, the new football helmets is uh, motivated uh, for the school's good or for somebody's kid who's the quarterback, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not it's not easy because on the flip side, if you've got a child at the school, you're going to be a very involved board member, and that's mm-hmm. obviously what what you want is somebody who's going to put in the time to do the work. Let me get to the issue of admissions. Uh, Obviously, admissions is the department that brings in usually over 95% of the revenue of the school. Can you talk to any particular issues that have come up or questions from board chairs about admissions and how they can interact with the admissions effort? Well, I think um, the two things that certainly that boards are, are concerned about would be financial sustainability of the school. Um, and that directly is related to tuition, um, enrollment and so forth. Um, and this past year in particular has been a very challenging year for some schools. Very few schools saw, saw um, no change in their enrollment. It seems that many schools either saw an increase or a decrease and you know fewer schools saw little change in enrollment. So um, you know with regards to I think one of the things that boards need to be concerned about um, certainly is is collecting information that allows them to understand how um, how they're perceived, uh, how the school is perceived in the community with regard to sort of their brand and reputation. They always need to be concerned certainly with that. And um, as far as how appealing and interested the community is in that in, in their school. Um, with regards to, um, uh, to other aspects of nutrition, of, of admission rather, I would say that this past year, Certainly, the topic of diversity has um, has you know reemerged as as an ongoing issue, and um, and so I think that the boards are really needing to articulate and be clear about what the school's values are around this issue and how those values are actually executed through their um, policies. So um, I think that's what they're really trying to focus on is let's be clear about what our values are as a school. And then let's be really clear that those values are, are executed and articulated clearly through policy. And then how do I know that that policy is being followed? Well, then I, you know, show me the data or show me some reports that reflect that. So in the admissions arena then, you know, what are the school's values around having, uh, say, a racially diverse student body? What, what are those values? What are those goals? How is that being um, executed through the admissions process? And 
Um, and so what the board would need ad admissions uh, staff and the administration to do is provide that data to the board to demonstrate how they are living the values that have, you know, that are the school's values in that area, whatever they are. So, um, you know, I think the board does have, or, you know, needs to have a strong relationship with the admissions office with regards to enrollment and um, even things like attrition and all those aspects that factor into sustainability of the school, um, but also looking at other, you know, other more subtle aspects around all aspects of diversity, whether it's socioeconomic diversity, racial diversity, you know, what, what are the values that the school uh, holds? Um, how are those being um, carried out through the policies and uh, practices of, of the school? You know, you brought up something that is very crucial and that is just plain old communication. Um, boards certainly have a lot, particularly board chairs on their plate uh, as does a head. And it's crucial that that communication, my recommendation always to my client schools is that they have more rather than less communication with the heads and the board chairs, particularly as it relates to ongoing statistics, ongoing activities. Uh, most of the people coming two boards are coming from the business sector. And in the business sector, as it relates to sales and marketing, there are very clear metrics that they're used to seeing. And I think they would probably help communications with the board and the head for admissions to provide that on a more regular basis rather than just the board report times. Mm -hmm. So there are no surprises. Right. Um, because it's interesting, the admissions skill set is, is something that there is still no college degree for. Um, it's, it's pretty much on-the-job training. And so it's really important that everybody communicate with the best ways that the admission office is presenting the school and also then to have that relationship with the board chairs and the rest of the trustees and the head as to how they can really help. And, and you mentioned earlier about getting into the community and, mm -hmm. and really reflecting all the things that admissions is trying to put forth mm -hmm. uh, through their own cohorts, if you will. Exactly. Um, you're, a, uh, you know, you're, a, you're a national thought leader. Uh, you've got a family. Um, tell me a little bit about how you organize your day and, <laughs> and to keep so seemingly calm, cool, and collected. <laughs> um, well, actually, my position with ISCA is technically a part-time position um, as executive director. So I have structured my, my week where I try to focus uh, my ISCA work, uh, you know, three full-time days a week. And then I leave the other two days, um, you know, uh, a little bit more free. So I try to schedule meetings and, and all of that within three days. The other two days, I will respond to what I need to, um, you know, that might be of critical importance. But, you know, um, uh, you know, I don't know how I, I mean, how I structure my day. So I, um, I do have uh, children still at home. Um, yes. You know, I make sure that they're, you know, 
off and doing their thing first thing in the morning. Um, and then I spend a good, because I work from home, uh-huh. I have that luxury of working from home. Um, I'm able to come up to my office and spend a good chunk of my day um, doing my work here. And then, um, you know, and then it's family time and, and personal time, um, you know, hopefully in the evenings. So, well, talk to me a little bit about, about that structure. What's a day like for you? What time okay. do you start? Do you do a certain amount of exercise? What What's your kind of uh, self-care routine? So, you know, I always start off my day. I started this routine of doing a meditation and a gratitude journal every morning. Mm -hmm. Um, So I started doing meditation and um, a couple of years ago started doing um, every morning. I write one thing in my journal that I'm grateful for. So that's how I start my morning. Before a wonderful way to do it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. you know, and then uh, I have a dog as well. So there are many days where um, I take him for a walk down at the beach. And I actually did that first thing this morning. And it was, it's a beautiful day here. So, you know, all, even during the winter and the coldest days, you know, dogs still need their exercise. And I have one that loves to run. So um, I'll take him down to the beach for a run. Um, getting some fresh air and um, and going for a walk first thing in the morning is also uh, something I do uh, not every day but but probably four to five days a week and it's a great way to start my day it puts me in a great frame of mind um, and uh, and again sort of I'm lucky to live by the ocean so for me the ocean is also that source of Zen, um, that allows me to sort of, you know, set, you know, center myself and, and really, um, makes my day get off to a great start. Uh, and then of course it's, so then it's work time, but then, um, as far as my other, um, you know, activities, you know, I do love to cook. So, um, I'm often on dinner duty happily and, um, we'll be making dinners um, and then I do take some classes. I enjoy, as you had mentioned, I do serve on the board of a dance company here in Newport. And so dance is also a personal passion of mine. And I still take dance class. And really? yeah, I do. Now, I were, do. You, were you a ballet dancer? Uh, I did. I did ballet. I did jazz. I did tap. And as an adult, I started hip hop. So um, hip hop has actually become one of my favorite uh, dance genres these days. <laughs> I, love, I love dancing. And um, so I do a couple classes, uh, dance classes a week. Um, and um, so depending on those are usually, you know, late afternoon, early evening classes. So that gets woven into into that. Um, you know, so yeah, those are, those are some of my, and, and certainly, like I said, cooking is one of my, uh, also a passion. So, um, what are you known for? I mean, if, if you're going to really, uh, make, make an entrance with the food, what do you cook? What's oh my goodness. Well, you might guess from my name that I might be of Italian descent, <laughs> of which I am. So um, I make a pretty mean pasta bolognese. Um, we also have a, um, an oven, an outdoor pizza oven. Um, oh. And so we make, um, you know, uh, 
fresh pizzas in our pizza oven outdoors, but I also started experimenting with more wood-fired cooking mm. and I'm doing lots of other things in this oven um, from meats and, and, you know, non-breads and all kinds of things, which has been absolutely fantastic. So um, that's been a fun new, that was a new uh, experiment during the pandemic. I started experimenting more with wood-fired cooking. So that was really fun. Um, so yeah, I would say certainly um, anything Italian uh, would be <laughs> in, my, in my wheelhouse. Well, I, I think you and Mark Sclaro are going to have to get together. <laughs> I, and he also loves cooking. And, and he said the greatest joy is just watching them eat and, and have a wonderful time. And he, he disclosed to me that probably his top dish is cheesecake. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> so I think between your Italian food and his cheesecake, you guys could have a great we'd have a, we'd have a great dinner party. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Now, it seems like you've been in leadership positions a lot. So uh, tell me a little bit about the high school, Bethany. What what kind you know, what kind of person were you in high school? So that's interesting. So, um, yeah, I actually had some leadership roles in high school as well. I was, um, you know, in high school, we had class officers. Uh -huh. And um, in my sophomore and senior year, I was, I think, social chairman of our, of our <laughs> class. I spent my junior year in high school as an exchange student, actually, and lived in Italy for a year and went to an Italian school in my junior year in high school, which at the time was, um, you know, not very common. And um, it was a full year. So, um, so that was really a life-changing experience. Okay, um, and some of the friends that I, I made during that year, I still hold dear to this day. Um, so, yeah, but uh, it was, and I was, you know, um, played on the tennis team at high school and um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a great high school experience for me. Now, did you go to a private school or a public school? I went to a public high school. Now, you mentioned Italy and mm -hmm. is, is that something that you like to do in other countries? I mean, what are your favorite countries beyond Italy? Well, I certainly, you know, Italy is certainly one of my favorites. Um, you know, when I traveled to Italy, when I was in high school, that was my first um, experience traveling uh, to Europe, uh, not just oh, okay. to Italy. So, um, so that was uh, really, um, really special. Um, but I certainly have done other travel and um, I have traveled to New Zealand, uh, which oh, yeah. is, you know, one of my absolute favorite countries. I have found the people there to be incredibly warm and friendly and open and inviting. Um, so I love, I, I love New Zealand. Um, I've traveled to other parts of Europe, um, to Paris and Switzerland, um, in other parts of France, um, you know, been to Mexico um, and other Caribbean destinations. So I have not been to Asia, um, um, but hopefully that will be on my, on my to-do list in the years ahead. Well, Speaking of things to do, uh, obviously you've you've done some great travel. So, what 
else is in your bucket list? <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, you know, I think that, um, what do I really want to do? Well, I definitely want to travel more. Um, I want to keep dancing um, and keeping and learning and, and uh, getting better at both dance uh, and continuing to play tennis, um, which I'd love to do more uh, competitively. Um, and then I love, you know, there's other things that I've done. I'm, I have a very creative side. Um, I started a perfume company, um, a natural perfume company for a few years, um, which was, what was a, the name of the fragrance. What was the name of the fragrance? The company was called eight count fragrances. And again, it was a dance theme inspired company because mm. I really felt that, um, dance as in perfume, it's a way of expressing who you are and how you feel. Mm. And yes. perfume is, is similarly, you know, you choose a scent that you think, you know, that resonates with you, that reflects you. And so um, we created eight different fragrances that all had different, um, you know, dance uh, sort of theme names. And, um, and it was, and it was wonderful. Just learning the science of creating perfume was a fabulous uh, learning experience. And so I love those kinds of things where I'm learning something new and, uh, but it's probably a little bit more on the creative end. I'm not so inclined to, you know, I don't have a strong interest in learning the next greatest technology thing, but I do love uh, anything more on the creative side and the arts. And um, that is always very appealing to me. Well, I think you have certainly one of the greatest attributes of effective <laughs> leaders, and that is being a lifelong learner. Um, and, you yeah. know, one of the one of the things about lifelong learning is that when you are looking to see what you want to learn about, there's normally a philosophical underpinning somewhere as to why you're doing these things. And my question to you is, was there any book or particular philosophy of life that really that really gave you a direction in life? Um, I think for me, it is about having um, meaningful purpose. Uh, you know, I, I just, um, so everything that I've done has resonated personally for me with some purpose that I care about. And so uh, just to extrapolate a little bit on the perfume, for example, like what does that have to do with any purpose? Well, um, because I said that the originally um, I was served on the board of this uh, dance company was with all nonprofits, you're looking to find ways to um, help them earn money and always. raise resources yeah, and so forth. And so, um, you know, that desire of trying to figure out a way to help a company raise more money and, and I had come across a couple other, you know, um, examples of some natural perfume companies. And I said, oh my gosh, it could be kind of cool to have like, what if they had their own, you know, perfume and they sold that or made that available and, you know, they could, um, you know, 
somehow reap some benefits from that. So when we set up this company, we created part of this was that a percentage of all the proceeds went back to nonprofit dance organizations, but also we created a fundraising component where if a, a dance studio or a dance company wanted to embark on a fundraising initiative, because a lot of dance studios for um, not for uh, professional dancers, but for students um, that are competing, they often are traveling to go to competitions or, and so forth. So they're always looking to raise money. Um, we, we tried to create a feature that allowed them to be able to sell mm. the perfumes and raise money for, for their dance studio. So um, for me, it was a combination of, again, this purpose of the higher purpose was how can I support the dance world through maybe through a passion of mine and this creative outlet of creating perfume. So that was for me sort of the epitome of, of matching passion and purpose. And that to me is joy. <laughs> so um uh, and then certainly with, um, you know, with my work now, again, there's such meaningful purpose to what we're doing at ISCA and having experienced it myself, knowing how I benefited from that support, um, you know, I know that there is true value to what we're doing. And, um, and for me, that is a, a great source of joy, knowing that I can, that through our organization, we're helping board chairs be effective governance leaders and we're supporting them. And especially because it's not their profession, that's not what they're trained to do. Um, and so it, it really is a sense of satisfaction knowing that we are making a difference, um, you know, in, in this small way. Well, and, and you're absolutely right. Joy can come in a lot of different packages. Um, you know, there's, there's joy from that first spoonful of ice cream to helping somebody uh, have a great educational experience or leading a school. This episode is brought to you by ISCA. Does your board chair know about ISCA, the Independent School Chairpersons Association? The mission of ISCA is to support independent school board chairs in becoming effective governance leaders for their boards. ISCA accomplishes this by offering peer support and networking resources and educational opportunities. Get your board chair connected to ISCA today by visiting iscachairs.org. That's I-S-C-A-C-H-A-I-R-S dot org. I-S-C-A-C-H-A-I-R-S dot org. Are there any other causes that you support or that you have passion for outside of, of dance? Would you say? Well, yeah, in our, um, you know, going back to sort of my um, public health days, uh, we I worked a lot in the area of food insecurity, um, and um, you know at the time um, creating opportunities for underprivileged uh, families and particularly children um, to benefit uh, from um, from a variety of programs and resources. So. Um, I spent some time both from, you know, in my, in my roles of, you know, testifying and from and state, you know, in front of state legislature around bills and that would uh, help support um, 
uh, families who were really struggling with food insecurity, making that issue um, a more relevant, uh, prominent topic on people's minds and, and having them understand how they could make a difference that's become more commonplace now. Um, but I think that, you know, um, those would be some of the other areas that um, I have tended to gravitate to, um, you know, in addition to, to dance, but certainly I still have a very strong interest in public health and nutrition, um, even though I don't practice that um, at this time. Um, so. Well, that's, that's certainly something that's been on everyone's mind for quite a while, particularly through the COVID issues, but even before, mm -hmm. uh, when you look at so many people that are below the poverty line mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. don't even have the basic necessities such as food and, and decent shelter. I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, as, as we look at the pandemic and just what's been going on socially, what do you feel are, are some high priority social injustices that need to be corrected? Well, I mean, I think you just have to listen to the news on any given day and, uh, and just see where, what's happening in our country. Um, uh, I mean, just well, let this last weekend, I mean, there's been articles in the New York Post about New York based schools and, and the issues uh, surrounding um, anti racist programming and activities and um, I, I'm seeing such um, I'm seeing real divisiveness really come to light and it's very disconcerting. Um, I, I hope that my, my hope is that um, we can think beyond just taking care of ourselves mm -hmm. and, um, and, and just really recognizing that, you know, we are community. I, I mean, we are nothing without community. And um, I hope that society that um, we can just think about taking care of each other just a little bit more, um, you know, than, than we are now. Um, and just putting, um, sometimes just putting someone else um, before us and, and not thinking, I feel like we're so egocentric and as a, as a country, we tend to be very egocentric. Um, you know, I think one of the things that traveling has taught me is that when you go outside of the United States in particular, um, people have a much different perspective. They're much more universal and global in their thinking, um, in part because, you know, their countries are smaller. And I understand that we are a very strong, powerful country. Um, but all of the, everything that we listen to and we read is, is very much focused on the U.S. And, um, and I think when you go abroad, you realize how much more global um, citizens are around the world and taking in information that's not just about what's happening necessarily even in their own country but in other countries and they just become better global citizens and I don't know that we've become very good global citizens yet I think we're very very centric on on just on the U.S. and and again I think we all have to recognize that um 
we're part of a, of a global society and we just need to be more mindful of that in the way that we think and practice. And, um, and that's, you know, alone, um, it, it is not really the recipe. Standing alone is not the recipe for success. Um, so I just hope that we can treat each other with a little more kindness, a little more respect um, that, you know, and dignity and, that we can not be afraid to stand up for each other and support each other in times of need um, and recognize that um, we are sort of all in this together and, um, and we need to be there for each other. Well, those are powerful words and I, I absolutely agree because I think as human beings, we share a lot more in common than we could ever imagine. On, on many, many levels. You know, you've been a successful person in your life, but as any successful person knows uh, or has had in their life, challenges. Could you share with the listeners perhaps a challenge that you really felt almost brought you to your knees, uh, but you overcame it and, and grew from it? Is there anything that comes to mind? Sure. You know, in the course of my life. So uh, I had mentioned that I went to, um, uh, to Italy when I was 16 years old. So this was back in the early eighties. Um, and, you know, I went to a country that I didn't speak the language very well. Um, I was immersed in an Italian school. So everything was being taught in Italian. Wow. Um, I lived with an Italian family who spoke very little English. <laughs> um, and so, and that was, you know, at a time where, you know, there was no, you know, there was no text messages, no email, you know, I wasn't talking to my family. I literally talked to my family once every two weeks, um, you know, on the phone. Um, you know, what, uh, it, that was an enormous challenge um, for me personally. Um, you know, the idea of, of one, you know, at 16, not seeing my family for a whole year, being immersed in a culture and, and language that, you know, was still very foreign to me, um, and navigating those challenges, uh, was enormous. Um, but I grew so much from, from that one year experience and, um, you know, it, it, forced me to really rely, like dig deep and rely on myself um, and kind of pull myself up and say, okay, well, you're here. So you're going to have to do this. So, you know, um, yeah, I remember the day I arrived, um, I went, uh, you know, I was greeted at the airport. We stopped at my family's, my host family's home for a little bit before it was the late summer. So they were going into the country for the last couple of weeks of summer. So they're like, okay, just repack your things. And I remember just sitting there like saying, what have I done? Like, I just started crying. Like what, I have to go home. Like, what was I thinking? <laughs> and then all of a sudden, like, you know, something just snapped and I'm like, okay, well, you know what, you're in this. So you better get your act together and, um, you know, and get on with it. And I did. Um, so then I, I would say that then, you know, another challenge that probably, um, you know, that was difficult was this, um, the challenge of balancing or trying to understand uh, 
my work sort of ambitions and, and motherhood. So I left my position at the health department after I had my second child. And I think that as um, a mother, um, but someone who also had a career, I was struggling with what I should do. Um, I had this desire to sort of like want to be home with my kids, but yet there was also a part of me as I realized that I, I wanted to still work. And then I was feeling like, oh, well, just taking care of my kids, like I wasn't completely satisfied. I felt guilty about that. Um, and so I had to really um, come to terms with, I think if I were to talk to any sort of new mom or, um, I, I don't know, I think there's this, we sometimes... Um, try to ignore what's what I would call our knowing, that inner voice that says, it's okay that if you still want to be, you know, you still need another outlet, you still need, whether it's a creative outlet or a work outlet, but that um, don't worry about what society might, how they might view you, or even if you think they might judge you for thinking that just being a stay-at-home mom was not enough for you. Um, and I think that we struggle with that as women a lot about what expectations are, are of us. And what I would say is that trust your knowing and, and follow that knowing because for some being that mom at home is everything that they want and need to be. And it's important work. And then for others to not feel guilty that if they want to still have their career, um, to not feel guilty that they're not home with their kids every day. I think that you have to really tap into your knowing and trust your knowing and, um, you know, and you have to create your own path and trust that. Um, and that will ultimately be what makes you a better person anyway, um, and a happier person. So, um, so that's, that's powerful. My... That's far. I love the word uh, that you've used, knowing. You've got to, to have your own knowing. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that, because uh, I agree, we have to have a personal path and vision. And I remember when I was rather young, I put together what I considered the values that I would live by. And after I got married, then we created a family credo, if you will. You know, it's like anything else. Um, you have to know where you're going all the time or as best or as best we can. And it seems like in your life, you've uh, you've had a pretty good direction as to what you've wanted. Let me ask you if consider that you're going to create something, you're going to create a billboard on the freeway of the world. Everybody's going to see it when they drive by. What would you want that billboard to say? What message would you like to impart to the world to, to have them remember? Hmm. Uh, there's a word that I've used recently, uh, or not, not even so recently. I guess I've been using it over a few years that it's an Italian world, Italian word called Forza, F-O-R-Z-A. And it's used in the Italian language. It's like, ah, Forza, die, Forza. It means go forward with strength. And... Um, oh. I, and I, and there is no singular word in the English language that actually represents that expression. Um, and I, um, I, I, I think for me, that would be the one thing. It's like, know your convictions. Don't be afraid to stand up for what you believe in or what you want. Um, 
you know, again, know your knowing, like be in touch with your knowing and, um, and go after that, go after what you want your life to be. You, you create your life, you create, you know, your, uh, your purpose, your passion and, um, and go do it, go Forza, like go, <laughs> go do that. Live your life the way that, um, that you're meant to live it. Well, given our conversation, I must say your husband must be a very lucky guy. <laughs> How did you all meet? How did you and your husband meet? Um, we actually knew each other in high school, but we were not friends in high school. We did, we were in the same class we did know each other because it was a, you know, a fairly small high school. I think we had like 300 kids in our, in our class. So we all knew each other, but it wasn't until many, many years later when um, we found ourselves living in this, in Newport um, that we uh, actually reconnected and got together. So we had a, you know, we had a history and a, that commonality of the shared experience of growing up in the same town. Sure. Sure. Um, and um you know, uh, that sort of thing. And, and again, many, many years later, um, you know, we reconnected. So, so what was the proposal situation like? How'd that go? <laughs> um, well, it's funny because actually uh, it was a cool spring day and my husband said, Oh, let, let's come on. We got to go for a walk. And I'm like, it's kind of like, it's getting really chilly out. So I'm like, but okay, we'll go. It was like one of those, it was actually in April. And um, and here in Newport, uh, like during the day at this time of year, like it can get really nice and warm, but then boy, it really cools off very quickly in the afternoons and early evening when the wind starts to pick up and so forth or the sun starts to go down. So we went for a walk and I think I was being very difficult because I said, okay, like, <laughs> let's get going. Like I'm freezing. It's time to go back. He's like, Oh, so I think, um, I blew what his plans were <laughs> there. And then he, he ended up proposing back when we were in our, in my apartment. So, um, but yeah, it was, it was very nice. And, uh, but yeah, I think I kind of, um, I think he had something else in mind of a destination and I didn't, <laughs> didn't quite allow him to get there. <laughs> that happens a lot in life. Well, how long have you been married? Uh, it'll be 25 years this year. Congratulations. Congratulations. I was my wife's waiter in New York city. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yes. I, and I think <laughs> the, the secret is that I still am. <laughs> so that's uh, that's worked well for me this has been an absolutely delightful time with you and i you know, before we go i just wanted to ask you bethany is there anything more you'd like to say to the listeners or impart uh, any more of your thoughts on any particular subject well I, I would just say certainly you know going back to to schools and and the work that we're doing at isca um, you know, for anyone who's listening, if, you know, to please let them know, a lot of schools don't know about our organization and what we do for board chairs. Um, and I, I would just encourage you to let them know about us. Um, go visit our website, give me a call. We would certainly welcome them, um, you know, to be part of, of this community. And um, again, they are volunteers. And I think anything that schools can do to support them in their work um, 
is a wonderful thing because ultimately it benefits the school. So um, a well-prepared board chair who is well-supported and has good, good resources and can do better work in that leadership role will ultimately benefit the school. So I, I would just encourage encourage folks to, um, you know, to let um, the board chair, head of school know that we exist and, and have them learn more about us. Well, that's crucial. And a number of our listeners are people from the admissions world. And obviously, as we discussed earlier, having strong communication with the head and the board chair is, is crucial. And the more effective the training is that these board chairs come in with, it just benefits the whole institution. So again, thank you for all the, the wonderful work that you are doing. And I, I look forward to us doing this again. Well, Tom, I thank you for having me. And it's been such a pleasure to have this conversation with you today. So thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you and uh, enjoy your next uh, Italian dish uh, <laughs> and sets on the court. So Absolutely. please have a nice spring. And again, thank you so much, Bethany. Thank you, Tom. That's all for today's exciting episode of the Admissions Entrepreneur, A Day in the Life, with me, your host, Tom Skank, founder of Dartmouth Associates and creator of the Results Oriented Recruiting Solution, otherwise known as ROAR. Again, we've been treated to more fascinating stories by our guest. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so you'll never miss an episode and Share the podcast link with your friends and colleagues. Also, stop by our website at dartmouthassociates.com. That's dartmouthassociates.com to review show notes. Thank you for listening. And until next week, have a terrific day and please stay safe. This episode is brought to you by Winner Marketing. They are a global company that actually understands independent schools. I know. As their advisor, I bring 30 years of educational success, both as a head of school and director of admissions. They don't try to squeeze you into a campaign template that doesn't fit your educational needs. Instead, they first listen carefully to your concerns and develop a creative solution just for you. They understand the increasing competition in the marketplace and aggressively pursue a comprehensive campaign to elevate the school brand to your target market. Their precise approach guides potential families from awareness to inquiry and to finally enroll. They use world-class methods to raise credibility and rankings by featuring you in top-tier press campaigns and optimizing your Google rankings with dynamic content. Additionally, they create press releases, funnel and ad campaigns, SMS and email nurturing. Also, they enhance domain authority create backlink strategies, and engage top-tier retainers to get you featured in platinum publications such as Forbes and Business Insider. They will also create a podcast branding tour to exponentially increase your exposure. They've got the skills to help small nonprofits to multi-million dollar corporations. Contact them now. They can save your school. You can reach them at their website, which is winner. W-Y-N-N-E-R marketing.com. That's winner marketing, W-Y-N-N-E-R marketing.com. 
wintermarketing.com or reach them via email at info at wintermarketing.com. That's I-N-F-O at winner, W-Y-N-N-E-R, marketing.com. This episode is sponsored by the NinjaGram app. Let's talk about automating your social media with the NinjaGram app over at www.ninjagram.app. This Instagram software will help you automate and grow your Instagram following fast by using their auto follow, auto unfollow, auto comment, auto like, and auto story views feature, and much more. Get over to www.ninjagram.app today to purchase and download the NinjaGram app at www.ninjagram.app and start growing your Instagram following fast today. Also, I want to give a shout out to my producers over at Hype Music Network and jwattproduction.com. These guys produce all my episodes and I trust no one else to bring the quality performance I demand every time. If you need help with your first podcast, they will take you by the hand and guide you through the whole process. Visit them at hypemusicnetwork.com. That's H-Y-P-E-M-U-S-I-C-N-E-T-W-O-R-K.com and at jwattproduction.com. That's J-A-Y-W-A-T-P-R-O-D-U-C-T-I-O-N.com. You will not be disappointed.